Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Hey, uh, we're going to pause. Y'all know me. I told you I get a little scatterbrained. So, you know, we're in a series on our corporate worship. Um, but I'm pausing just for a week. And, um, and we're going to, uh, I want to talk about, I want to talk about the delusion of romance in our society. That's what I want to talk about today. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, you know, you don't, you don't have to go far uh, to understand really how our society views romance. Um, if you just kind of just pay attention, um, even listen to how we are entertained, you will get a glimpse into our views and philosophy on romance. I was watching a movie the other day, and the two characters were kind of going back and forth, and one was saying, hey, man, you know, you should, you should consider getting married. And the other protagonist kind of responds and says, yeah, well, you know, that, that seems really perfect in theory to think about coming home from a really hard day, kissing someone, and having all your problems go away. And my married friend say, amen. <laughs> amen. But there is a delusion that we chuckle at, but in the depths of our heart. I wonder how many of us today are still holding on to that. Married or single, there is an intoxicating attraction to romance in and, and the optimism about what it can do for our souls that is alluring and it's a part of the devil's age-old strategy. And I want to offer you just a text just to sober us um, and hopefully in hopes that we live more Christ-exalting lives that are rightly ordered and aligned um, and understand romance in a biblical way and sense. Romance is a gift given us to, uh, by God. And it's a part of who we are as human beings. Uh, but when we get it out of place, it can lead us down some really dangerous paths. And so we're going to look at our brother Samson today and just examine a couple things. Um, you know, uh, Samson's story, I would just offer to you, is probably, you know, especially as I came back and visited it afresh this, this week, it's a really, really cool story. Um, and I think sometimes we relegate some of the... Mm, Golly, tangent, you know, out of fear and what I would say is poor theology and exposition, you know, sometimes we don't stand here and preach a lot of Old Testament stories to you. And that's a shame because it's all God's word and it's all pointing to him and it's all giving us different glimpses and aspects to the beauty of God's grace and what he calls us to as his people. And so sometimes we don't give you enough narratives. We teach them to our kids, but we don't think it's sufficient for you. So we're going to tell you about Daniel and the lions then when you're three years old, but we don't preach them here in the, in the big folk sanctuary. And we're going to stop that here. Because if it was just as good for you when you was in VBS, it's good for you now. Amen, somebody. You need to hear something about that little boy swinging that song around and hitting that big Goliath. You need that right now. Oh, come on. Amen, lights and walls. You need that right now. And so I, man, 
I just would encourage you, the story plays out in just three chapters in Judges, all right? Just three chapters. You can read it all in one sitting tonight, 13, 14, ooh, maybe four chapters, 13, 13, 14, 15, 16, right? Um, But it's a short read, but it's really, really rich, and I was fighting myself. I was like, ooh, I can't include that, no, 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 no. So I won't. Uh, But over those three to four chapters, it's just going to give you Samson's birth, um, his first encounter with the Philistines, and then his second encounter with the Philistines. Um, it's in the book of Judges. What you need to know about Judges, it's, the, it's this weird gap space, right? Moses has now, and Joshua, they're off the scene. God's people, uh, they need a little bit of leadership before the United Kingdom comes on into play and Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Um, so God raises up these judges. Judges equal deliverers, equal saviors. They play a really important part in the grand narrative of Scripture. These judges God would raise up uh, to act as saviors and deliverers for his people, especially when they were in the cycle of sin and poverty, right? Things would be good. They start trusting in other things. They would, you know, be humble, and they come back to God, they repent, and then they do it again. And then in the middle, to break up these things, God would raise up uh, these deliverers. And Samson uh, was one of those. Um, The best verse I could find was maybe uh, what Renata read for you, just to kind of, we won't return back to it a whole lot often, but it's the best one that can kind of sum up the story and where we're going. You know, when you read about Samson's story, what you need to know is that it's just filled with his impulse. It it is filled with um, the intrigue about his strength, which was truly superhuman. Um, And obviously, uh, Samson's life was just filled with a lot of drama. Everybody say drama. Jerry Springer could have just put more poems. They could have just, let me just, let me just play Samson's life for y'all. Just, brother had a lot of drama going on. Um, but like I said, there's so much with Samson's story. Samson is one of a handful of key birth pregnancy narratives that were included in Scripture. It was important, right? You got Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, um, Jesus, John the Baptist, and you got Samson, which is one of the significant pregnancy birth narratives in Scripture. You should read it on your own time. Um, it also, Samson in the middle of 15, he prefigures Christ in such beautiful ways that we'll talk about it even later. Um, this is a story about so much more than supernatural strength, y'all. This is loaded, all right? Um, so I encourage you to go read it. But what I want to do is I want to focus. Everybody say focus. Which Gina will tell you is pretty hard for me. Amen. We got an amen in the house. There's one amen. There's one amen in the house. I want to really zoom in on, you get Samson, three chapters of Samson. Two of those chapters are his adult life. One is his uh, birth story, and you get three women in two chapters. The women are a big part of the story that God is trying, the love interests rather, are a big part of the story that the scripture is trying to get across to us. Um, And I want to focus on those. They kind of play out in three little mini vignettes. um, And I want to help us see uh, a picture of sickening romance. Everybody say sickening romance. Blinding romance. And entangling romance. You know, you know, I was so glad when that word, word, word entered into the modern lexicon. Entanglement. Actual black friends, they'll tell you <laughs> what's going on right there. They'll help you. They'll help you. 
So let's talk about it. Let's first, let's look at this sickening romance. Like I told you, chapter 13, Judges 13 is about Samson's birth narrative. Once you get in Judges 14, we finally meet Samson. Samson is now on his way down to Timnah. He's an adult fellow. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. She looked like Gina Johnson. And get her for me. I'm sorry, I read that in there. It's not there. It's not true. Anyway, I got to imagine that this lady, y'all do realize, this is not Delilah. We got to get to one more lady before we even get to Delilah. Okay? So, Samson now sees, Samson, this Jewish man, sees this Philistine woman and says, hey, mom and dad, I need that one. Got to have her! Right? What I want to first pause and talk about is sickening romance. Romance in our culture, the way that you're being discipled, the way that you're being formed, either subconsciously or consciously, is to believe that you can't live without it. I got to have her! Mom and dad make it happen. And so we see that one of the things that's pretty much expressly forbidden for Jews in that time is like, hey, it's going to be bad business for us to intermarry. Now, for those of you all who, man, we have a beautiful expression of multi-ethnic marriage in this place, which is beautiful. We're not talking about the same thing. What we are talking about is a theocracy in the Old Testament, which went inherently with the intermingling of different nationalities was also their theology. You take that spouse, you also take inherently their beliefs too. And Yahweh was like, no, we don't want to start doing that. Go see Exodus for how all those things play out, right? First comes love, then comes marriage, and then comes disaster. Disaster. That's what the Old Testament has been trying to tell you. Samson knew that. He was aware of that. Samson's a bad boy, though. He wants what he wants. Samson wants what he wants. Dad, go get her for me, right? And I, I will also say, too, Now, as we put this hermeneutic back into play in the 21st century Christian space, let's talk about mixed marriages. Let me me just set the, somebody need to write this down. Maybe you need to help your friend. If you are in Christ, the first step, the first bar, the first rung that we hope for you is that you find a godly spouse who can run with you. That's number one. So we don't want to start with, hey, I found a lady. She a Philistine, but don't worry about it, Pastor Tim. No, 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 that's, that's not where we want to start. That's not where we want to start. That's not where we want to start. Because we want to find somebody who can run with you. However, I will say, there's times, we preached about this three years ago when we were preaching uh, mixed marriages in 1 Corinthians 7. Like sometimes, some of you caught yourself, find yourself caught up in places and spaces where it's like, hey, man, you're, you're with somebody, you're cohabitating or whatever, and you kind of can't dissolve that thing in 1 Corinthians, put it plain. Go get, better to be married. Buried, better, don't fool yourself. Uh-oh, here I come, down your street, it's okay, but I love you. Don't fool yourself if you are literally doing what married people do, but because you don't have the title, you think you're honoring God. Okay, all right, all right, all right. I'm going to come off your street in a second, but I got to say it to you plain now. Don't fool yourself. Well, I'm not going to play with the title. Well, you're already playing with the office. So you might as well go ahead and get married 
In which case, God can still be glorified in mixed marriages. He can. There are people in this room who are married to people who are not believers, and God can still be honored. It's a tough road to hoe, though. It's a hard road to plow. God can still be exalted. But you want to carefully consider that because there are costs to that. Amen, somebody. I know it's tight, but it's right. It's tight, but it's right. So Samson got himself caught up. He's in a mixed, he's, he's, he's in a mixed marriage. And what the narrative says that we kind of mix is there's beef. Obviously, the Israelites, they find themselves now um, in a Philistine-dominated geographic landmass and area, right? And so um, God's people were always to be set apart. But one of the things as you study the Old Testament and the prophets, the, God's people always struggle with uh, fear, fear, and seduction, fear, and more seduction, right? So they were pretty much, they were some scaredy cats. So anytime they felt like, uh-oh, this nation is stronger than us, man, let's just, we're not going to act up. We're going to play nice, nice. We're going to play nice, nice with the Philistines, right? God's people were never supposed to be shopping at the shopping malls with the Philistines. They weren't supposed to be in the marketplace doing those things, but now they kind of find themselves, Samson's in a place where now the Philistines and, and the Jews are figuring out how to kind of cohabitate and live together. You know what God did? Go read Judges 14. Let me tell you, God's sovereign determination. See, you were playing nice-nice with your enemies, but God never, he never squashed the beef. <laughs> So God sovereignly used Samson's impulse to handle his beef. It's in the scripture. I can't go it right now, but you have to read it. Essentially, God wanted vengeance on the Philistines, so he allowed Samson to enter into this relationship. And we'll talk about it more later. He wanted to end up humiliating them, and he will. I say all that to say, just pause for a second. Romance has this intoxicating, sickening kind of effect to it. And be careful. Because maybe sometimes God can be using your disordered desires and lusts to humiliate your idols. Maybe sometimes he'll let you have what you think you want so he can humiliate it. Oh, have that. Yes. Take it. It's Romans 1. All we're doing is repeating Romans 1. You want that? Have that. So you can see that it's worthless. Be careful, those of you in this room who are being discipled by this culture into love sickness. Maybe God says, the only merciful thing I can do is let you have what you think you want. To show you that that joker can't satisfy you. To show you that that lady can't be what I can be for you. Be careful, those of us who are lovesick. Romance is one of the many tricks the devil has used for ages that overpromises and underdelivers. So eventually, Samson does marry this lady, but at the wedding feast, the wedding feast was popping off. Please, if I marry you, don't you be inviting me to your crazy receptions where your uncle, auntie, cousin, all them drunk, and no, uh don't do that. Now, pastor will start slipping out. I can't do it. 
This was a rowdy wedding feast because what had happened, some, some, sometime along the way, as Samson is going down to his wedding feast, he kills, um, um, you know, dem- this demonstration of supernatural strength. He kills um, this lion, um, and he actually writes a riddle about it. And um, what's happening at the wedding feast is that there are men who are fixated on trying to solve this riddle. So much fixated on trying to solve this riddle that they go and jam up his wife and like, hey, man, Tell us how to solve this riddle so that we could receive all the things that Samson promised he'd give us if we solved the riddle. Um, and so here's what you need to know. I love this. Those of y'all husbands who need to be delivered from nagging. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that, is that the other way around? I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it says that Samson's wife, after she was being pressured, she cried all seven days of her wedding feast. And pressed him, and pressed him, and pressed him until finally Samson broke and he told her the secret. She eventually told um, the Philistine men the secret. They solved the riddle. Samson's upset now. He's fuming. He's like, oh, I know the only way y'all got the answer is you jammed up my wife and you incessantly hounded her until uh, she answered you. So in revenge, he goes out. He kills 30 dudes. Just knocks off 30 dudes. Um, and then meanwhile, uh, Samson's, after this big fiasco at the wedding feast, Samson goes out, he seeks his revenge, and then Samson's father-in-law, he kind of gets scared, so he offers Samson's wife to another one of his friends. And so Samson was really cool about that, y'all. He just kind of let it go, didn't he? No way. Samson said, oh, I'm about to get my get back. And so Samson, he then, he, this, y'all remember this whole narrative about taking the foxes together and tying them together? He destroys their grain fields and their wine fields. And so they were really cool about that. So they, they squashed the beef, right? Absolutely not. They respond. The Philistines respond. And they uh, essentially murder Samson's uh, father-in-law and his wife. Samson was like, okay, that's enough bloodshed. We're just going to let, let, let sleeping dogs lie. Absolutely not. Samson strikes down more men, and then he runs to hide in a cave in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. And here's here's Judges 15. Just put a star. This is really sweet because this is beautifully prefigures Christ. Remember I told you God's people were never to be intermingling with the Philistines. And as a matter of fact, when they homeboy sparked up the beef. Now listen, I'm just from different parts. I told y'all before, I'm a lover, not a fighter. But I understand my duties. You just kind of understand what it is. There's a couple times in my life where it's like, man, I'm, tr- man, I'm trying to go flirt with this girl. And my homeboy said, hootie hoo. Now you understand what it is. Israel was supposed to ride with their homie. You know what they did? The Philistines came to them and said, hey, we here. And they said, why y'all here? We looking for Samson. He destroyed our stuff. You know what they said? They didn't say, bro, you better stop looking for us. That's our dude. They said, we'll get him for you. (laughs) They went, the Israelites went to Samson. Samson, bro. They looking for you, bro. We would love to fight with you, but not this time. Maybe if you survive. No, I'm making stuff up now. But they go. They bind him up. 
And they go and get ready to deliver him to the Philistines. Somebody who's got their Christological lens is seeing what I'm saying. (laughs) But Samson says this. He says, I'll go with you. Just don't kill me yourself. Don't kill me yourself. Okay? Take me to him. Just promise me you won't kill me on the way there. So they take him. And then God gives Samson supernatural strength again. He breaks free from the bonds. And he kills the enemies of the people who were going to deliver him up. Praise Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But the second vignette, so after this occurs, Samson is now back on the run. But he does something really brash. And he goes to Gaza. And let's talk about blinding romance. Just starts with what Renata read for us. So he's back in Gaza. And we see our boy lovesick. Married this Philistine woman, but then tragedy strikes. And now he goes to Gaza, which is a predominantly Philistine area. And he decides he's just going to blow off some steam and have some fun. And he's going to go and be with a prostitute. I want to talk about blinding romance. In the idea, once again, Romans 1, that unbiblical romance darkens your reasoning. Unbiblical romance darkens your reasoning. Now, Samson, how many dudes is looking for you? And now you about to go party with they women? What you doing? What are you doing? Sometimes, as the old folks would cutely say where I'm from, Boy, that boy got his nose wide open. Y'all white folks, y'all say that too? This is black. My, my grandma, Lula Mae Curry, bring that girl around here. Yeah, I told you to do this and do that, but you can't understand me because your nose wide open. That's what she would tell me. Because unbiblical romance darkens your reasoning. And I think if you've been raised on Disney and Pixar and rom-com, we have a way, we, we have a way of softening that and making that cute. You know what I'm saying? But it's actually not cute. It's not actually not cute for you to be so uh, uh, blinded by something that it eclipses your God-given sense of what is honoring to him and to your neighbor. That's actually not cute. And that's where we see Samson right now, so brash, so unaware. I think prostitution is what it always is. It it represents, it's not marriage. It's not just lust. It's not just whatever. But it it represents a sense of adventure and escape. And it kind of has that same kind of narcotic quality, that drug cycle, that each time you, you, you do it, you seek out that prostitution because each time you do it, you, you, you have to do more to match or eclipse the last high that you got. Um, and you'll risk even more to get it every time you do it. 
And do you know romance has that kind of same effect on you? It's like, man, you know what? Okay, that one wasn't enough. I'll seek another one, and I'll more adventure and more escape. And you know what? Maybe this romance will be even better the more I'm willing to risk to give to it. Romance, y'all, romance, if it's not done in a Christ-honoring way, will blind you. I'm reminded of the scripture Hebrew says about Moses. Said Moses was willing to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Romance, when it's not done in a Christ-exalting way, it just, it just has fleeting pleasure. It gives you a little bit of a high, but it, it, it doesn't sustain. Nobody, if you ask any, name your favorite Christ-exalting couple in the room and just ask them to tell you how romantic they feel 365 days of the year. And I will just tell you, your heroes, they don't sustain their marriage off romance. And you want to know the reason why some marriages fail? It's because you've been discipled by the culture more than you have the house of God, and you expect the romance to do more for your marriage than grace will. And then you get inside the marriage, and you're like, where's the romance? See, you overappraised it. It cannot sustain a marriage. It can be a beautiful, wonderful, life-giving gift, but it cannot be the rock that the marriage stands on. So we got Samson in the first, first verses. He with prostitutes, and now he's in, uh, in later on in the fourth verse of chapter 16. This brother's a fast mover. Reminds me of a young Tim Johnson. Thank you. Let's talk about entangling romance. So he's with prostitutes in, in the first two verses. And in verse 4, it says he loved a woman named Delilah. That brother, can't catch me, baby. <laughs> he on the move. He got a big heart. That's what it is. He got a big, Samson got a big heart. <laughs> he got a big heart. He need a lot of love. And obviously, we don't, I won't rehash all the details of this story because it's the most familiar one. But we see in this particular vignette how romance has a, a tendency to fight your priorities. It, it just does, man. It just does. And Paul says it really practically in 1 Corinthians. He's like, hey, man, I actually wish that most of y'all would just stay single. You know what I'm saying? Because one of the practical reasons is that literally this gift from God, it will bump up against God sometimes. And you single people, y'all look and y'all like, ah, blah, blah, blah. you don't understand. But it's true. Sometimes your marriage is leaning on you in the opposite direction of Christ. It's true. And it's because you're married to a sinner. And sometimes their goals are not always Christ-exalting. And they're just trying to lean you purposefully or not purposefully in another direction. We see here another Philistine woman who is now purposely leaning him in another direction. Y'all see the similarities in the story? <laughs> First wife, they wanted to know the secret to this riddle. 
She cried the whole wedding feast, pressed him day after day until he relented. What does Delilah do? They want to know the secret to his strength. They press Delilah. And what does Delilah do? Presses. If you don't think choosing who has your heart will have an effect on your everyday life, you are fooling yourself. You know what she says in chapter 16? She hit him with the book. She hit him with the ace of spades. Do you love me? Because if you love me, then. Come on, people of God. Don't let romance blind you now. It has a cost. And so we see how romance makes you vulnerable. And you, we can see how romance, you could have your love leveraged against you. You can have your love leveraged against you. So we conclude with just kind of how the story ends. Essentially, what you learn about in Judges 13 is Samson was a child dedicated to the Lord in a special way. He had a Nazarite vow. It just seemed, simply meant they abstained from alcohol and great production. They abstained from cutting the hair. They abstained from um, touching dead corpses. Um, all of this out of commitment to the Lord. That was what a Nazarite vow was, right? Hey, man, we're not going to do these things to demonstrate our commitment to God. She nagged. Finally, um, Samson told her the answer. The Philistines were on him. And uh, it's the craziest thing. Uh, verse 20. Then she called to Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. It's the scariest verse in the Bible, I think. And I think when the Lord was finally working on me and finally getting me out of mama's faith, finally getting me out of ritual Christianity, when my faith kind of began, became my own, I remember vividly my dad, who was a very gracious man. He's a man who is well acquainted with sin. He humiliated himself and his family, so he had a very tenderness towards understanding God and his redemption. And I'm so glad that God used him in my life. But I remember, I think he picked me up from a football practice, and we were driving down the street. And I was caught up in all the things I was caught up in. We were in some beat-up pickup truck. I think this was the first scale for me. He said, Tim, you know, he wasn't fussing at me. He said, Tim, you got to be careful, man, because you never know when the Lord will say enough is enough. You're playing with fire. Some of you in this room, I just want to tell you as calmly as I can, 
we don't know what you're doing. We don't know what you kind of got yourself caught up in. But if you could hear my voice today, I know we tell you all about God's mercy and how much he loves you. But I'm just telling you, if you continue to go out and live your life in ways that are contrary to God, you don't know when he'll say enough is enough. Stop playing with fire. You will get burned. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came on people. It came on people. And I think the way we need to make sense of this is just the idea that Samson's strength came from his hair, from the vow. The hair represented the commitment. Strength, the hair, the hair represented the commitment. The commitment equaled the power. Now, I'm doing a little theology right here because I want to make, I think I want to distinguish some things, and we can fuss about this later, but I don't think what's at stake here was Samson's soul. It was the power. Okay? It's the power. God's grace is sufficient. I do believe any man believeth in him, he forgives your sins, past, present, and future. But that don't mean you have the same level of power. That don't mean you have the same level of joy. That don't mean that you have the same level of peace. And I think you have plenty of New Testament evidence and reference to support that. Walk in the Spirit. And do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Ephesians, grieve not the Holy Spirit. So you get this big Old Testament promise. They understood their pneumatology. It's like, oh, God, when God wants to do big things, his spirit comes on people. Can you imagine Joel when they're hearing that one day God's spirit will be poured out on all flesh? God, the Old Testament saints are jealous of you. You don't even realize what you have. They're thinking that, oh, that same spirit that comes on Samson, that the New Testament church, they get that when they believe? What? Man, they jealous of you, yo. But when you live in ways that are dishonoring, you keep draining that supply. And if you want to walk with more power, if you want to see God's life force in your life more manifest, pay attention to how you walk. Pay attention to how you live. So, how do we respond to a culture that overinflates romance? First of all, quickly, because I'm running out of time, we need to celebrate the Christ-honoring versions of romance we do see. You get a whole book in the Bible dedicated to romance. Song of Solomon. I don't believe that is, you know, figurative language. I, I think there, there's some, some things that point to Christ out of Song of Solomon, but predominantly, I do believe that is a book to be taken straight forward. You need to delight in the person that God has given you to delight in. And you need to pursue them and to love on them and, and fill that sail and delight in the garden that you have. I think that's Christ exalting and Christ honoring, and we want to encourage that. 
Why did I teach a sermon on romance to singles and marrieds? Because you both need to hear it. And I think one of the things that the singles you need to hear me out on, I know it's, it's going to be tight, but it's right. You know, we get a whole lot of the, man, but you don't understand what I'm going through. Amen. Amen. Every journey is different. And at this church, there's no JV varsity. We need married people and single people to uniquely express the beauty of Christ in ways that, there are ways that married people cannot express the beauty of singleness and how it points to Jesus. We need single people. I'm going to stop saying, I'm repenting actually right now. I'm going to stop saying that, man, we need to get people off the single ministry. I hope every year that God allows me to be a pastor, we have singles. Because they have a beautiful way of pointing to Christ, his devotion, and his singular commitment that married people just can't do. They're absolutely important parts of this body. And at the same time, single people, as we elevate you and as we take the sting out of romance in our culture, we still need you, though, to be rooting for the married people. You know what it means? That some of y'all need to confess jealousy and bitterness. It's not. You're not commiserating anymore. You're not venting. You just need to confess some sin of jealousy and coveting. Sometimes you just want what other people have. And that's okay. He got grace for that. But stop calling it what it ain't. Oh, I'm just being, no, no, no. You're actually being bitter. You're actually being jealous. And that's not, you are playing right into the devil's playbook. If we're guilty of over-appraising romance, and we're creating a divide that does not need to exist in God's beautiful body. We need to celebrate when we see Christ exalting pictures of romance. We need to root for it. We need to be aware of the devil's schemes. I think if you're unmarried in this room, voluntarily or involuntarily, you need to realize this culture is discipling you either into being Samson or Delilah. This culture is discipling you into either being Samson and so in love that you will be blinded by your romance, or this the culture is discipling you in a way that you will use and leverage your romance like Delilah did. You need to understand and be aware of his schemes. I was um, listening to an R&B artist. And I was just like, holy moly, all these songs sound like worship songs. You know, have y'all ever noticed that? It's like, man, sometimes when you listen to a worship song, you're like, oh, am I listening to a love song? Because they're really interchangeable. You got to be careful. I said to myself, oh, my goodness, if this is discipling our people, no wonder they're lovesick. Because everything they hear and see is that somehow romance is going to fix it. Come on, man, I know, I know you know what I'm talking about. If that's what we see through the eye gate, if that's the music, whether we're just listening to the nice melody or not, if that's what's being pumped into our vein, of course we're setting ourselves up for a major letdown. Married or unmarried. Last but not least, 
We need to not let eros eclipse agape. It's a little grip. A little Greek for you. Don't let eros eclipse agape. Jesus says, John 15, that the greatest expression of love is how you, Romeo and Juliet. No, he says the greatest expression of love is when one lays down his life for his friend. Gina's not the best thing to happen to me. We're okay with that. And we're going to outlive your marriage. Because Jesus is the best thing to happen to both of us. And that makes me love her more. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus and what he's done for us. I don't know today. Obviously, the story ends. Samson's secret is revealed to the Philistines. They cut his hair. Their hair is where his strength was. Because his strength was gone, they were able to seize him and they were to take him back captive. Gouged out his eyes. Just humiliated him. He prays to God and... John 16, I mean, uh, Judge 16, he says, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just one more, once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines. My two eyes. And the Lord was gracious. He gave Samson strength one more time. And the mighty Samson killed more Philistines that day than he did in his entire lifetime. When mighty, when mighty Samson was at his weakest, and God was at his strongest. I don't know where you feel weak today. Maybe you are in the middle of an exhausting season of singleness and you feel like this thing will never end and you want it to end. Maybe you are in a really challenging marriage and you are being crushed with the reality that romance is not what you thought it was. I just got good news for you today. If someone died for you, offered his life for you so that his strength could be made perfect in every season of your life. And you might feel like you're at your weakest, but that's when God is at his best work. Do you believe it today? Just close your eyes with me.